The scripture reading this morning is from Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Good morning and uh, happy Easter. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. I hope that you are doing well. Uh, Because it's Easter, I wanted to really spice things up. I thought about wearing like a tuxedo t-shirt and really going all out with class, but decided at the last minute uh, not to do that. But just wanted to encourage you in a season where it feels like this is an Easter service from the novel, uh, you know, 1984, that Christ is still risen. Okay? It's not like he's not risen this year because we can't meet as a church. You know, maybe he'll just be risen again in 2021 or something like that. The resurrection still happened, and we're still awaiting our resurrection, and so everything is going to be okay. So I'm sad that we can't gather as a church body uh, for Easter in this season, uh, but our hope is not in any way diminished. Well, uh, today we're going to be in Philippians, actually, 3, 8 through 11. We're stepping out of 1 John. We typically do, uh, you know, kind of these one-off little series or one-off sermons around Easter or around uh, Christmas time. Uh, but because we're going to be talking about the resurrection, we're going to be here in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story. So I was uh, working at a church one time, not here at Parkway, but at a different church. And I got a call uh, in the middle of the day from a buddy of mine who is actually in law enforcement, right? He was a SWAT team guy and a, you know, a narcotics guy and all this kind of stuff. He's actually the guy that taught me to shoot, kind of like a mentor for me. And so he calls me in the middle of the day and I pick up and he says, hey, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I'm just pretending to be a pastor here at the church. What are you doing? And he said, well, I'm actually, uh, working on a murder case and I need your help with something. And I was thrilled, right? I'm like, wait a second, you need me to help you solve a murder? I've been waiting for this call my entire life. There's something in the heart of every little boy that thinks that one day they're going to get a call from like the president. And the president's going to say, I know you have no skills or training, but I need you to save the world. And you're like, yes, sir, I'm on it. And I'm like, okay, I'm pulling out my magnifying glass. I'm like, what do you need? I'm ready to help you solve this murder. And he said, okay, well, I'm solving this murder. And we have this dead body in this field with this car. And inside the car on the keychain, there is a key tag for your church. So what we had at this church at the time was we had a way where you could check in your kids by using this little keychain. That way it was a safe and efficient way to scan the tag and then your kid could go back to their classroom. And that's what he was talking about. And as soon as he said that, it hit me, we might have a murderer in our congregation, okay? So I went to my boss and I said, hey, who in our church handles, you know, murders? Is that like, you know, this ministry or this ministry? And so we're trying to figure out, is there a murderer among us in our congregation, okay? So for like a day, we're pretty stressed out trying to figure out what is happening. Well, thankfully, I got a call from that guy uh, the next day, and he said, I've got some good news for you. He said that the person who actually had committed the murder stole someone's car and used it to transport the body, but that the person who owned the car was not the one that did the murder. And there was an instant uh, sigh of relief, okay? Realizing, I thought we had a murder in our congregation, but we didn't, and all the fear and everything went away, okay? Which was really, really good. If you're ever wondering what pastors do during the middle of the week when we're not preaching sermons, that's what we do. We fight crime, 
right? We, we solve murders. And so finding out that new information, that helpful information, took all this fear and all this anxiety and it just dissipated. Well, that's what this text is going to do for us today, regardless of what your fear is. Whether you're in a season where there's a lot of fear and anxiety, whether you're somebody who's afraid of death, whether you're somebody who's afraid of whatever it might be, the resurrection is going to be the solution to your fears. So let's pray and then we'll get into the text. Almighty God, we thank you for this text. I pray that you would bless us, that you would protect us, that you would guide us. We, uh, We confess that Christ is risen. And that one day we will be raised as well. We believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. And so we thank you for today. We thank you for Easter. We thank you that Easter cannot be canceled. Whether we can meet or not, the resurrection already happened. And so we love you and we thank you. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's look at verse 8 together and see what it says. Indeed, I count, this is Paul speaking, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now look at the first thing he says. When he says, I count everything as loss, what does that everything entail? Well, first you need to understand it pertains to his religious pedigree. If you look up a few verses above verse 8, what Paul is doing is he is giving his Jewish resume. He is saying that when it came to following God's commands, when it came to being a good Jew, he was like the Superman, SEAL Team 6, Jedi Master of Judaism. However Jewish you think you are, Paul crushes it. That's what he's saying. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews and he knew the Bible. He was so passionate for Judaism that he wanted to have Christians killed. Okay? He is the Superman of Judaism. He like pulls open his shirt and instead of a Superman S, there's like a star of David. His kryptonite is like bacon or something like this. He just, he's very Jewish, okay? And what he is saying is all of my religiosity, all of my righteousness is nothing compared to knowing Christ. But I think that the text is actually even saying something stronger. It doesn't just list Paul's religious works and say Christ is better than these. It switches to the word, and it switches to this word in Greek as well, all things. All things, when it comes to comparing them to knowing Christ, are as loss. Not just still great and Christ is better, but Christ is so much better that these other things are as a loss. Literally everything. Christ is better than literally everything. Your job, your spouse, your kids, your life goals, pleasures, money, comfort, a huge house, financial security, friends, whatever it might be. He counts those things as a loss when you compare them with knowing Christ. So not only is Christ our righteousness, but he is the best thing, period. That's what Paul is saying. Look at it again. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Here's what he's saying, and this is really important, that Christ is better than everything. Now, this is something that we as Christians would affirm. We even sing a song about this, that Jesus is better, okay? It's something that we would affirm theologically, but a lot of times we don't actually believe it in our heart. So let me just try to to build up a case for you of why Christ is better than everything. First, Every good gift you have comes from God. Every good gift you have comes from Father, Son, and Spirit. Every good gift you have and enjoy comes from God. So if you say, okay, God's great, but I really love these other things, God is the one who gave you your spouse. God is the one who gave you your kids. God is the one who gave you your health. God is the one who gave you your money. God is the one who gives you sunsets and delicious food and drink and whatever it might be. Those are all from God. 
even the things you love, if you just completely run into idolatry, you're probably running to something that was made by God. So first, God is better because he is the creator of the good things you already like. Second, he has given us eternal life. Christ has died for your sins. You have eternal life. So not only has God given us good things in this life, but he has given us eternal life. That one day you will be raised. And if you know Christ, there is only joy and bliss for you for all of eternity. No more weeping, no more crying, no more pain. Only joy, only just just an overwhelming sense of peace, calm, these kind of things for eternity. Not only will you not sin, you won't even be tempted to sin. Everything will be absolutely perfect. And Christ has given that to his enemies. He didn't give it to good people. He gave it, he gave it to people like us who are awful, who hated him. And if that wasn't enough, Christ is better because he is infinite. He is eternal. God is, it's not as though God is just on a scale of great things you like, right? So there's like a boat and then a mansion and a billion dollars and then God's at the top. He is infinite. Everything else is merely finite. So how much better is something that's infinite than something that's finite? Here's the answer. An infinite number of betterness. That's the idea. Whether you subjectively believe this or not, God is objectively better than everything else. What he is showing here is that knowing Christ is the greatest thing. God is not asking you to give up the best thing. He's asking you a lot of times to give up these lesser joys so that you might have the highest joy. God is capital J, joy. All joy flows forth from him. Psalm 73, 25 through 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart and my bank account and my kids and my spouse and my whatever may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now look at verse 8 again. When he talks about knowing Christ in verse 8, we see that at the end. Indeed, I can. Everything is a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. What does that mean to know Christ? What does it really mean to be a Christian? What does that mean to know Christ? Now, this is a very important thing that you need to answer, especially if maybe you're a visitor just watching this online or something like that because it's Easter. Please listen to this. What does it mean to really know Christ? Because knowing Christ is what makes you a Christian, okay? Believing in Christ, knowing Christ, doesn't merely mean that you believe that he exists. You know why? Because the devil believes that. Surely you have to have faith that's better than the devil. The devil believes Christ exists. Christ exists, okay? It also just doesn't mean that you think that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, the devil thinks that Jesus is the Son of God. It doesn't just mean, knowing Christ, that you think that Jesus died for the sins of humanity. The devil believes that Jesus died for the sins of humanity, Being a Christian, knowing Christ, doesn't mean, now listen to this one, it doesn't mean that you have merely prayed a prayer to invite Jesus into your heart, whatever the heck that means. I don't even know why we use that language, okay? It doesn't mean that you got baptized, a lot of people that are baptized going to hell. Doesn't mean that you walked forward on an altar call. All of those are things you do, okay? Knowing Christ in this passage refers to an intimate knowledge, a relational knowledge. Here's what Paul is saying that Christ has rescued him. So this is my question for you. Has Christ rescued you? I'm not asking if you've done something. I'm asking if Christ has done something to you. Think about this difference. Imagine somebody who's been taken captive and they think to themselves, I sure wish someone would save me. 
That's very different than the person that actually breaks in, pulls them out of that prison, and rescues them. I'm asking if the second thing has happened. Has Christ actually rescued you? I went to church my whole life and wasn't a Christian. I got baptized when I was 11. I was a good kid, blah, blah, blah. I would have said I was a Christian. I would have said that I loved God. But it wasn't until I was 17 or 18 when some neighbors invited me to church where I really heard the gospel for the first time and God opened my heart. And all of a sudden, God was the one that was doing the saving. I wasn't doing the stuff. God was doing the stuff. All of a sudden, I thought, I actually believe this. During worship songs, I would just start crying because they were just so true. My actions started to change. There was this kid at school that wasn't going to have anything for Christmas because his family didn't have much money, so I just gave him a PlayStation. I was convicted when I would sin. As a teenage boy, I had all these pictures in my room of women in swimsuits. And I remember sitting on my bed one day after uh, becoming a Christian, looking around thinking, wait a second, I'm not married to any of these women. I can't have these pictures here. And so tore them all down. There was just something that was changing in my heart. God was the one doing the rescuing. Here's my question for you. Has Christ rescued you? He promises that anybody that comes to him, he will by no means cast out. Yes, you should have faith in Christ. And if you have faith and you ask him to save you, he will save you, okay? But I'm trying to make sure that you really know him, that you really have faith, that you haven't just been in church or done a religious ritual and then therefore think that you're saved because of that. That's not the kind of knowing that Paul is talking about. New Testament scholar Gerald Hawthorne says this, faith is not intellectual assent to a series of propositions about Christ, but the act of personal trust in and self-surrender to Christ, okay? So yes, there are propositions you must believe that Christ is eternal. He did not come into being. He is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. Yes, that he died for your sins. Yes, that he's raised. There are propositions you need to know, but you also must personally know him. That it can't just be head knowledge, it has to be this heart knowledge. Now look at verse 8 again, look at the second half of it. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, here's the first thing you need to understand. When Paul says that he counts all things as rubbish, that doesn't mean that they're actually rubbish. That doesn't mean that your spouse is rubbish and your kids are rubbish and all these good gifts God gave you aren't actually good or something like that. What he's saying is, In comparison to Christ, the things that you love the most are as rubbish, okay? That's in comparison to Christ. It's very similar to what uh, Jesus says, Luke 14, 26. Pop quiz, does the Bible ever tell you to hate people? Here we go. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, let me be clear. Jesus is not saying you should actually, literally try to hate these people. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told to love them. The whole series we're going through in 1 John says to love your brother, etc. Okay? But what it's saying is your love for Christ must be so high that your love for the things you love the most is as hate when compared with Christ. That's how great Christ is. That's the point of what he's saying. It's not that they're actually rubbish, it's that they're rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. Christ. Here's the deal. If you love something too much, it's hard to kill that passion. Rather, what you have to do is you have to replace it with a greater passion. So if your kids are like an idol for you, you love them as much or more than God, the solution is not to love your kids less and like be mean to them or something like that. The solution is to replace that passion with a greater passion 
which is Christ who gave you those kids. If you love playing golf, you don't need to love playing golf less. You need to realize that God is the one who gave you that gift and you need to love Christ more. It's very hard to kill a passion. What you have to do is you have to replace it with a greater passion and that greater passion is Christ. Now, there's something that's going on in verse eight that's a little bit scandalous, okay? Something that's going on in verse eight that's a little bit scandalous because Paul's word here, rubbish, is the Greek word skubalon or skubala, okay? And it is a crass and vulgar word. Okay, I'll just say that. It is a crass and vulgar word in Greek. It's used for things like dung. It's used for manure. Uh, Some translations translate it as unspeakable filth. It's used for elsewhere in Greek literature for a half-eaten dead body. Okay, this is a very, very crass and offensive word. It's so offensive that I know of one New Testament scholar that thinks that it should be translated as the English curse word for feces, which I'm not gonna say because I know that there are kids listening. Okay, now let me be clear. Paul here is not actually using what we would think of as a curse word. The Bible's clear to let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth, okay? Why does Paul, though, intentionally choose a shocking term that would have been offensive to his audience? It's so offensive that in uh, church history, a lot of people translating it try to, try to tone it down, try to use euphemisms and these kind of things. Why is Paul using this difficult, not curse word, but borderline curse word, word here to refer to his deeds in Judaism and everything in comparison to knowing Christ because he's trying to shock you. He's trying to say that Christ is so great that your religiosity, that your works-based righteousness and anything you think that's better than Christ compared to him is actually poop. It's actually a, 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 not a great thing compared to Christ. That's what he's doing here in this text. So before moving to verse nine, I need to ask you this because I think this is really important. Do you count all of your righteousness as scubalon, as rubbish? Because I think that many of you in here, especially if you grew up in church, you were kind of the good church kid. You probably think, okay, yes, I'm saved by Christ, but look at all this resume that I have. Look at this checklist of do's and don'ts that I do a good job as a Christian keeping. You must count your own righteousness, not as something that merely doesn't save you, but as scubala, as rubbish, as dung. Charles Spurgeon used to say that when you become a Christian, you don't only repent of your bad deeds, you must repent of your good ones. Have you done that? Have you just found your identity only in Christ? Have you let go of all your striving and all of your trying to please God? Have you just found your righteousness in Christ or do you hang on to your religious resume? Are you like Paul when it comes to being a super Jew, the super church kid, and you're trusting in your own righteousness? That's where this text really hits home in verse eight. Let's look at verse nine. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now look at the first part of verse nine. What does it mean when he says, and be found in him? This is the idea of judgment day, that you don't know when you're going to die, and then at some point after you die, there will be a set day, a judgment day, where God will judge everyone. And what Paul is saying is on that day, I don't want there to be any surprise that I will be found clothed in Christ's righteousness. I don't have to stand before God as a sinner, which would just destroy you would send you to hell, but rather you stand before God clothed in Christ's righteousness. So it's kind of like this. So I don't like going to the doctor. I like doctors, but I don't like going to the doctor, but I still go because I'm a responsible adult. And so, uh, you know, you go to the doctor and you sit in a room full of sick people, which doesn't make any sense. 
And then you go back to the doctor and, you know, he says, hey, what's going on? And you explain what's going on. And then he says something like this. Oh, that's just a cold. There's no cure for that. Just go back home and drink some water. And you're like, how much did this cost me? $1,000, okay? That's pretty much most of my uh, uh, doctor experiences. I actually have a really good doctor that I really like. But one of the things that's always weird when I go to the doctor is when they have to take an x-ray, okay? Because they're telling you that everything is fine and safe as they're like strapping on lead armor to you. They're like, we're just going to take a little x-ray. Is this going to hurt my body? No, you'll be totally fine. Wear this bulletproof looking vest. Put on this lead vest. And I, as the, uh, you know, the technician, am going to come and stand behind a wall and push a little button. And so I'm standing there wearing lead. And they're behind a wall. And they're like, don't worry about it. Totally safe. Totally not going to die or get cancer. You'll be great. And that's what they're doing. Now, the reason that you have to wear this armor and they go behind a shielded wall is because if you're exposed to too much radiation and too much x-ray power, whatever that is, I'm not a scientist, that what it can do over time is it can cause cancer. It can hurt you. It can kill you. Now, imagine standing before God just unclothed, standing before God just in your own righteousness. That would destroy you. Christ is like that lead vest. You're covered in Christ's righteousness so that you're not destroyed, so that you're seen as perfect and you're seen as holy and you're seen as righteous because of Christ. That's what he wants. He wants to be found in Christ on judgment day. Now it says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. We'll come back to that. But that which comes through faith in Christ. Okay, now this phrase, faith in Christ, just throws New Testament scholars into a fit. Okay, a lot of ink has been spilt on this because we're not exactly sure how to translate it. In Greek, it literally says the faith or faithfulness. The word faith and faithfulness can mean, they are used interchangeably with this word. Faith or faithfulness of Christ. It's the Greek phrase, pistis Christu. The faith or faithfulness of Christ. Well, what does that mean? To say that you're saved by the faith of Christ. Is that Christ's faith? Is that Christ's faithfulness because he lived the life that you and I are supposed to live? Is it our faith in Christ, which is the way that the ESV translators take it? What on earth does this mean? This is difficult because this is what is known as, in Greek, a genitive. And you can take a genitive a bunch of different ways. Let me do some nerd stuff, and then I'll explain what's going on. In English, if I want to say that I'm Zach of Texas, I say that, Zach of Texas, okay? In Greek, what you do to say of, again, what's called a genitive, is you change the ending of the word. So you might say something like, Zach, Texas, ooh, or something like that. And that means Zach of Texas. Well, what does it mean to say that you're saved by pistis Christu, the faith or faithfulness of Christ? It can mean a bunch of different things. If you're confused, forget everything I just said, and I'll give you a few examples. Let me use a a few other genitives in English. If I use this phrase, love of Carl, is that a love that Carl possesses, a subjective genitive, or is that my love for Carl, an objective genitive? So I'll, I'll use it in both sentences, okay? Love of Carl. That can be my love for Carl, like in this sentence. I pretend to like French horn due to my love of Carl, okay? Or that can be the love that Carl himself possesses, like in this sentence. Because of the love of Carl, his family is provided for. Notice that it changes the meaning quite a bit depending on how you take it, whether it's in Greek or in English. Or I'll give you another one in English. How about this phrase? A fear of zombies. That can be our fear of zombies, as in the sentence, I carry a shotgun, due to a fear of zombies, okay? Or that can be the personal fear that zombies have of us. A fear of zombies is that they might get shot by Zach's shotgun, okay? So notice that this phrase can be uh, something Christ is doing. He's the subject. Or it can be that he is the 
object of our faith, which one is it? And here's what's tough. I don't know how it should be translated. Both concepts are true. I don't know how it should be translated. The grammatical argument is stronger for faithfulness of Christ. But the contextual argument and where Paul seems to use that phrase elsewhere, the theological argument sometimes seems stronger to say faith in Christ. But here's why I think Paul is not going into a lot of detail to leave it a little bit generic. I don't think that he's really parsing out those ideas in his mind. I think he knows that you're saved by what Christ did and you get it by faith. So let's look at verse nine. If that was confusing, let me break it down for you by looking at verse nine again, okay? It says this, and be found in him, look at this first phrase, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So here are your two options, okay? First is whose righteousness is it? And if you don't know Christ, if you're like Paul, who was a Jew under the law, it's your own righteousness. And then how do you get it? The law. So that's the first way that you might try to attempt to be saved. Whose righteousness is it? Your own. And how do you get it? The law. What Paul is doing is he's contrasting that and he's saying, no, 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 no. That way leads to death. There's another way that you can do it when you say whose righteousness is it? Christ. And how do you get it? Faith. So those are the two options. Whose righteousness is it? Your own. How do you get it? The law. Or whose righteousness is it? Christ. And how do you get it? Through faith. And he's saying the second one is the only real option. Here's what you need to understand. None of your righteousness comes from you. This is why you don't have to strive to please God. God is completely pleased with you in Christ if you're a Christian. You don't have to strive to please God because he's, you can't be more righteous than Christ. So none of your righteousness comes from you, even post-conversion. Your good deeds are works of the Spirit. They're not something that just innately comes from you, okay? But the other thing you need to see here is that none of your righteousness is based on the Old Testament Mosaic law. And this is important. I have some friends that are Presbyterians. I love Presbyterians. I'm like 49% Presbyterian and 51% Reformed Baptist, okay? And uh, I like my, but sometimes what they'll do because of their view of the law is they think that they have to follow certain elements of the Mosaic law to honor God, like keeping a Sabbath or not getting a tattoo or something like this, okay? And what's funny is I say to them, wait a, wait a second, all your righteousness is given to you by Christ, both for justification and sanctification. And they say, oh, I totally agree. I totally agree that, that we're saved just by Christ, yes and amen. But when it comes to sanctification, I should be getting some righteousness by following this command the New Testament says I don't have to follow anymore. And I say, that's, to a small extent, going back to the law for righteousness. And Paul is going to say, you don't get to do that. You have two options, self-righteousness and law, or Christ-righteousness and faith. Those are the two options. Those are the only two options. Look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Let's look at the first part. What does it mean to know the power of his resurrection? This is where we get into Easter. This is why we're talking about this text on Easter. There's a lot of things I love about Easter, right? I love how my daughter gets an adorable little Easter dress. Uh, I love how the kids get to hunt Easter eggs. I love how the weather is nice and beautiful. I love getting to eat Cadbury cream eggs. Those are delicious. I love getting to eat those Robin's eggs, Whopper things. Those are delicious. I don't like Peeps, right? Kids can like Peeps, but if you're an adult and you like Peeps, you're a gross person. But there's a lot of things that I like about Easter, but here's the thing I most like about Easter. Ready? Ready? Resurrection. That Christ is the Son of God, that he's been raised, that one day we will be raised. That's what I most like about Easter. And Paul wants to relish the power of Christ's resurrection. He knows Christ has been raised. 
He knows that the same Christ who's been raised dwells in him. He knows that one day he will be raised. That's what he's talking about. New Testament scholar Joseph Fitzmaier says this, the power of his resurrection is the life-giving power of God. The power which he manifested in raising Christ from the dead and which he now manifests in the new life which the Christian receives from the risen Christ and shares with him. All these images are blended together. Christ has been raised. One day you will be raised. You are in Christ, etc. That's what he's talking about by the power of the resurrection. Now look at this next part because it's a little bit weird. And this is also something that Paul wants, that he may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What does that mean? To share in Christ's sufferings and to become like him in his death. Well, I think it means two things. First, Paul probably does expect that because he's a Christian, he will suffer and he might even die for his faith, okay? He very much expects that he's going to be a martyr. In that sense, it's very much like Christ saying in Matthew 16, 24 through 25, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, an instrument of execution, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This, this whole passage here in verse 10 is not only saying that Paul might suffer and die for Christ, but it's also saying that because he's in Christ, what's true of Christ's status is true of him. Because he's in Christ, he's forgiven. Because he's in Christ, he's loved. Because he's in Christ, he's seen as perfect. Because he's in Christ, he participates with Christ's suffering and Christ's death. I'll I'll give you a little illustration. We talk about this a lot about what it means to be in Christ. This is a big theme in uh, the Apostle Paul throughout the New Testament. But I'll I'll give you a little example. So, uh, we had some friends who are well-to-do who gave Katie and I a gift card for a very fancy hotel for our anniversary. Okay, so we, we can't afford that kind of stuff. You know, a Holiday Inn Express is totally fine with me, but uh, these people were very generous, and so they gave us a gift card to this fancy hotel, okay? Now, as soon as we got to the hotel, I just decided I'm gonna lean into that identity. So I walk up to the front desk, and I'm like, hello. Obviously, you can tell I'm very rich by my Target jeans. I have a special gift card to stay at your fancy hotel. And they're like, well, it's good to see you, Mr. Lee. We'll get your room ready. And I said, can you have one of your servants bring my bag up to the room? And they're like, well, sir, we don't, uh, we don't call them servants. And I'm like, no, I, I think I'll be the judge of that. So the servant brings my bag up to the room. And I'm like, thank you, Reginald. And he's like, well, my name's Mark. And I'm like, I, I think we'll see about that. And so he drops off the bags. And then I was like a king, right? This place has like a spa and a fancy gym and like the nicest restaurant that I've ever gone to and like all this kind of stuff. And I'm just living in that identity. Do you think I'm ever hanging up my towel in a fancy hotel? No, right? I'm just gonna throw it on the ground even if I don't have to because I'm the king. Or you think I'm gonna make the bed in that hotel? No, I'm just, if I'm done eating a burrito, I might just toss it on a counter. Who knows? Who knows? I was just leaning into this identity. Now, here's what's crazy. None of that was from me. None of that money, none of that gift thing that belonged to me. It belonged to someone else. And I was getting the benefits of being in that identity. That's what Paul sees the Christian when it comes to Christ. Because you're in Christ, you have blessing. Because you're in Christ, you have forgiveness. Because you're in Christ, you're loved by God. That's what it means to be in Christ. And so what Paul is doing by naming his resurrection and his death and sufferings is he's just saying, I am completely caught up in Christ. Death, burial, and resurrection. That's the point of what he's saying there in verse 10. And then lastly, in verse 11, some more Eastery resurrection things that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, I need to explain this. 
when it comes to resurrection of the dead. This is something that Christians have always held, but for some reason a lot of Christians don't talk about it in modern times, and I don't know why. Your hope is not going to heaven forever. You understand that going to heaven forever as a disembodied soul is not a Christian position. That's what a lot of us think. We think we'll die, our bodies will go into the ground, and then we will either become an angel, which is not biblical, or we'll just be this floaty light orb of a soul, and we'll go up into heaven, and heaven is a place that's always playing elevator music, and right, and you lay on the clouds, and it's just like this weird Sistine Chapel-looking kind of thing, and then that's the end of the story. That is not biblical. That's not historical Christianity. The Bible teaches that, yes, if you're a Christian, you will die. Your body will go into the ground. You will go rest with Christ, but that's not the end of the story. You will eventually be reunited with your body. The eternal state will be physical. It will be bodily, a new heavens and new earth. Do you understand that? That's really important that you get. God's plan was not just to redeem your soul. Then you're only half redeemed. It was to redeem all of you. And so the Bible teaches not only was Christ raised, but that one day we all will be raised as well. If you don't believe me, let me give you a million passages that don't just talk about Jesus' resurrection, that talk about the general resurrection of everyone, righteous and unrighteous. There's a resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto judgment. Let's start in the Old Testament and then we will get into the new. Old Testament, Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, plural, their bodies, plural, shall rise. See, you thought resurrection was just a New Testament thing. Nope, it's all over the Old Testament. You who dwell in the dust, those who are buried, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust, that's a reference to death, of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Hosea 13, 14, which is often quoted in the New Testament about resurrection. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, where you go when you die. That's Sheol. I shall redeem them from death, O death. Where are your plagues, O Sheol? Where is your sting? John eleven twenty three through 24, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, silly Jesus, I know that. We're Jews. She says, I know that he'll rise again on the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm gonna raise Lazarus now. Whereas Martha thinks he's talking about the resurrection where you are raised never to die again. Only Jesus has partaken in the resurrection. There's many people that have been resuscitated, brought back to life, but they die again. Jesus is the only one to be brought back to life and never to die again, the first fruits of the resurrection. Okay, here's like 900 more verses. John 5, 28 through 29, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Luke 14, 14, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you when you're kind to these people and don't get repaid because they invite you back. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 2 Timothy 2.18, talking about false teachers who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Well, the false teachers can't be saying that Christ's resurrection hadn't happened. That's already happened. What the false teachers are saying is that we have missed our resurrection. We missed it, right? We were busy sleeping or something or out on the lake and we missed uh, the resurrection. Paul says that's false teaching. Acts 24.15, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Romans 8.23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await, I'm sorry, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 1 Corinthians 15.22-23, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Christ has been raised, and he is the first fruit. He's the first blossom. It's springtime. He's the first blossom on the resurrection tree, which means more resurrections are coming. 
and we will one day be raised. And it is our hope in resurrection because we know Christ who's been raised that we will one day be raised that we're able to overcome fear. Fear of missing out, fear of death, fear of financial ruin, whatever it is, the resurrection is our hope. I'll give you a little story. So I uh, worked with a guy uh, one time and uh, his name is uh, Mike and it was at a different job. And uh, my wife and I lived in an apartment at the time. And we said, hey, Mike, why don't you and your wife come over to the apartment? We've got a little pool and we can go swimming. And Mike said, Zach, I'd love to, but you need to know, though I'm a grown man, I don't know how to swim. And me, being the somewhat overconfident person I am, said, oh, that's fine. I'll teach you how to swim. I've never taught anybody to swim in my life. But I said, you know what, Mike? I'll teach you to swim. Why don't you just come over to my house and I'll teach you how to swim. So there we are in my apartment pool, two grown men, barrel-chested, strapping young lads. And there's kids in the pool and then just us, two grown men. And he's like laying across my hands. My hands are like under his tummy and I'm like, kick your feet. Kick your feet. You're doing great. You're not going to drown. Kick your feet. And he's like, am I doing it? Am I swimming? And I'm like, well, a lot of people are looking at us. So probably, but just, just keep kicking your feet. And I'm trying to teach him how to swim. Okay. I'm trying to teach him how to get comfortable in the water. He then realizes, okay, I think I've got this kind of horizontal swimming thing. I need to learn to tread water. But the apartment pool was too shallow right? Because everybody's just overly afraid. And so parks aren't fun anymore and pools aren't fun anymore because we're not okay with suffering and death like the rest of the humanity has been for all of human history. But anyway, that's a different issue. So we go to like a YMCA pool that's like 12 feet deep. And I'm trying to teach him how to tread water. I'm like, okay, first of all, can you rub your stomach and pat your head? And he's like, no. And I'm like, okay, well, then you're going to have trouble with this because you've got to kick your feet one way and you've got to move your arms another way to tread water. Okay. So he gets near the, uh, the edge where, uh, you know, so he can grab onto the side if he starts drowning. And he tries to tread water. And he's going under the water and, he's, and I'm like having to lift him up so he doesn't drown. And it's like, I mean, he's very stressed. His motions are very tight. He's very nervous. And so I realize as I'm trying to teach him to swim, this is the main issue. He has a fear. He has a fear of drowning. He has a fear of his head going under the water. So I change tactics radically, Okay. Time to say something about Navy SEALs because it's Easter, of course. So one of the things that you do when you're training to be a Navy SEAL is they do something called drown proofing, okay? What they do is they tie your hands behind your back and they tie your feet together and they throw you in a pool that's like 20, 25 feet and you just have to survive, okay? Supposedly, this drill came from uh, something that happened in Vietnam. There was an American POW. This is how the legend goes. And uh, he was thrown overboard into the uh, Mekong Delta or something into this river and uh, had to survive even though his hands and feet were tied. But the main reason that the Navy does this is to teach people not to be afraid of drowning. Here's all you have to do to survive if your hands and your feet are tied in a huge pool. Ready? You go down to the bottom of the pool, and then you push up. You get to the surface, take a big breath of air, go slowly back down to the bottom of the pool, and then spring back up. You can swim like a dolphin. You can survive for hours and not drown even though your hands and feet are tied. The whole point of the exercise is to show you that you're not going to drown, that you're going to be okay, that most of your fear, listen to me, church, is fake. Most of your fear is not something that you actually have to fear, okay? If you're ever out in the ocean and you start drowning, don't just do this and drown and get tired. Take a breath and just relax face down in the water. And then when you're tired, you run out of air, take another breath and relax face down. You can do that for hours, okay, until the sharks get you. But... So I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I didn't like actually tape his hands like in front of a bunch of people like a weirdo. I said, I just want you to hold your hands behind your back and your feet together. And I want you to go down to the bottom of the pool and push up. Take a breath, go down, let it out and do that. So after we did this for a little while, he started to calm down. This guy was a division one athlete. 
This guy, the, the problem was not physical. The problem was mental. The problem was a fear that he's going to drown. Despite the fact that there's a lifeguard and I'm there and he's by the edge, he's not going to drown, okay? Here's why I tell you that story. The resurrection is a reminder that your greatest fear is fake. You have nothing to fear if you're a Christian, okay? If, yes, Zach, what if I die? Well, you'll be resurrected. Zach, what if I lose financial ruin? Well, Christ is better than that. Paul's already said that. This text says whatever you're afraid of, Christ is better. The resurrection gives you hope. You're going to be fine. That's the point. That's the point. So let me end by talking about coronavirus here on Easter as well. We talked about Navy SEALs, Jesus, coronavirus, all the big topics. Let me, let me just say a few things. First of all, I don't know why God has ordained for us to go through a season of pandemic. A lot of pastors online will tell you why they think it is, and they're just saying really idiotic things. This is God's judgment on lost people. Well, then why do Christians die at the same rates? People do the same thing anytime there's like a hurricane that destroys New Orleans. They're like, I knew it. New Orleans is a sinful city. Yeah, but the hurricane like destroys more evangelical churches than it does strip clubs. Well, the reason that God did this is because we're so greedy. Well, then how do you explain the disease going to poor countries? How do you explain the disease going to where people lose their job who are not greedy? Okay? So I don't know why God has ordained this uh, pandemic. Be careful of over-spiritualizing it. But I do know why he's ordained it for you as a Christian. You know the answer biblically? For your good. For your good somehow. Think about it. You have more time now to read your Bible than you ever have. You have the opportunity to trust God with your finances. You have the opportunity to spend time with your kids. Though they're getting rambunctious, though they're getting cabin fever, you're going to look back on this 10 years from now and you're going to think, man, those are some sweet times with my kids. Think about how much you're outdoors. Your yards look amazing, by the way. Your lawn's just, everybody's working on their lawn way too much. It's, It's incredible, right? People are being healthier. They're eating well, taking their vitamins, exercising. Be hard to kill. Okay, do those things. Be hard to kill. They're doing all these kind of things and you're having to trust God. And here's what you need to know. God is somehow working this for your good. He loves you. You don't know that he loves you based on circumstances. Those change all the time. You know that he loves you because of the cross. So if you're somebody who is younger or healthy, you're probably not concerned with dying. At least you shouldn't be. Uh, You're probably more concerned with finances. Okay, for you, you need to remember the first part of this text that Christ is better. For somebody who's older, you might have a slight fear of getting the disease or something like this, even though your survival rate is very, very high. You need to hear that you have hope and resurrection, okay? That God loves you. God doesn't promise you don't go through hard times. He just promises that you don't go through hard times alone, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the big thing that you need to hear. Resurrection takes away our fear, not only in this season, but in any season. It allows you to have peace in the midst of the storm. But I'll also say this, last thing, last thing, and then I'll be done. There's also a sense in which you should have some hope uh, that God will do a kind work to you here. So I've heard a lot of pastors when it comes to this pandemic where all they say is, if you die, Christ is good. That sounds really spiritual, but it's actually borderline Gnostic, okay? We don't just trust Christ for eternity. We also trust him to be gracious to us now. When I go visit someone in the hospital, I don't just say, though you're sick, God is good. I, I pray for them that they would be well. That's actually an act of faith. So you also need to be encouraged that most likely you're not going to get sick. And if you get sick, you're most likely not going to go to the hospital. And if you go to the hospital, you most likely aren't going to die. We've made millions of respirators, all these kind of things. I expect God to be gracious to me. I'm a very entitled child of God. So in the meantime, yes, if something bad happens to you, Christ is enough. 
But you also need to know that God is being very gracious to us in this season. The curve is starting to level off. God has not had it just blow up in our city or something like that. God is being very gracious. He's gracious to us both on this side of eternity and in eternity. You don't need to be afraid. Relax, okay? Get your to-go food. Go on walks. Call people, check in on them via, you know, uh, Zoom or Skype or whatever it is that you use. And you need to know that everything is okay because Christ is on the throne. And we know that Christ is on the throne because of the resurrection. That is where God screams with a bullhorn that Jesus is king, that Jesus is king. Let's pray and then we will be done. Almighty God, we thank you for uh, Easter. And we thank you for a chance to just sit in the resurrection. I pray for those who are afraid that they would not be, both this side of eternity and after. I pray for a quick end to the pandemic. I pray that vaccines would be developed more quickly or medicines would be developed more quickly or that the numbers would stay low so that they're manageable. I just ask you to do this. We're supposed to pray for miracles. We're supposed to pray for good things. We're supposed to expect that you reward those who seek you. But we also pray that you would just help us rest. Help us rest. That Christ is risen. Everything is okay. That there is no reason to be afraid. I confess that I am one who's often afraid and often anxious and yet you've been faithful to me. That your goodness to me doesn't change based upon whether or not I'm being anxious that day. We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.